I haven't been up here this morning, so in case you don't know me, my name's Chris, together with Pastor Vicky, we are the senior ministers of this church, and I've come to bring you very quickly the Word of God this morning. And my, my aim this morning is to actually get you thinking, and when you start thinking, I want that to progress into actual action. And this morning, I want to get you interested in reading your Bibles not just at the level where, you know, as a Christian, one of the first commandments you get from anybody who's already a Christian is, well, you've got to come to church, pray, uh, and read the Bible. And so we read the Bible because we know it's the right thing to do. And you know, there, there are those of us who are unfortunate enough to take it literally and start at Genesis, um, which is a bit of a long slog before you get to some of the more interesting bits, um, depending on what you're interested in. Um, but I want to start today with the Gospels. And I want us to actually graduate over the next couple of weeks. Think of this as, think of this as the next 15, 20 minutes of me setting you homework. Who, who enjoyed homework at school? Excellent. That's what I like to hear. Well, this isn't like school homework. This is, this is m- homework for mature people. This is for us to get actually a, a grasp on how life can actually be a bit more fulfilling. So we're going to talk about becoming level 2.0 readers of the gospel. So the, the question we've been asking uh, over this year is, is why? So my question this morning is why four? Why have we got four gospels? So let me stop there because who knows that an explanation always needs a pre-explanation. I want to talk about hyperlinks. I mentioned this last week. The Bible is actually full of hyperlinks. They were in there way before Wikipedia came along and made them popular. There are links between Old Testament books linking within the Old Testament. There's links between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there are links between all the different books of the New Testament. That if you know where to look, and it pays to get a good Bible, actually, because a good Bible will actually have these links in there. Um, but they link things together. Uh, Often, I think, as New Testament Christians, we know that Christ died, rose again for our sins, and that we're living in a, a place of grace. And so we look at the Old Testament, we think, let's forget all of that. That's, that's all a bit, uh, bit gory, a lot of it to begin with. And some of the people in there, I mean, I wouldn't want them to be my neighbours. Uh, and so we concentrate on Jesus' teaching in the New Testament and, and form a line, like right down the middle of our Bibles, and say, well, that's the old stuff, and this is the new stuff, and we're going to ignore it. But they are intimately linked together uh, via this hyperlink idea, and I'm going to do that a bit this morning. I'm going to hyperlink around the place. So if it, if it sounds a bit circular, it is, but we'll get there in the end. So before we look at why there are four Gospels, what, what's a Gospel? Most people, I mean, and I would say the good news, but the gospel is actually the proclamation of good news. So it's actually speaking the good news out. It's not just good news. But so what, so if it's proclaiming the good news, what is the good news? And that the interesting thing about that is that the good news is not always the same. Uh, In the story of Jesus, Mark 1 verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So we know that the good news is about Jesus. But in Mark 1.15, Jesus announces, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So Jesus isn't self-promoting here. He's not promoting himself as the good news. He's actually talking about the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. 
So it can be quite different. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, it says, and this is Paul speaking, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. If, if It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures had said. So we can see this. He's talking about salvation. As a, as a Protestant charismatic church, we often focus so much on the fact that the gospel is a gospel of salvation that we miss out on the fact that the gospel is also about the good news of the kingdom and the good news of what Jesus did. And, and even in um, Paul's message here, you can see he mentions twice that he's put in what was passed on to him and what was in the scriptures. Now, Paul did not have a copy of the New Testament in his back pocket. When he refers to the scriptures, he's actually referring to the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. And so there's, there's links between all of that. So we've got the, the proclamation of good news. Do you know, the Greek New Testament word for good news, I first heard it in a Japanese anime series in about 1995 called Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I didn't actually realise it was Greek. I thought it was some Japanese sounding name. But Evangelion is the Greek word for good news. And so the title of that particular um, series, and if you're young enough or geeky enough to have ever seen it. Um, it really stands for New Birth, Good News. And having watched most of the episodes, I can say that the title doesn't fit the actual thing at all. It was one of the most depressing series I've ever seen. It did have angels in it, though. Um, and it occurs about 100 times in the New Testament. And from that, we get the medieval word, which directly uh, translates from that, called, and the medieval English word is good spell. But funnily enough, it's only spelt with one O. It's pronounced Goodspell, but it looks like Godspell. Who, who, who's old enough to have gone to Godspell when it was around? <laughs> Interesting. Can anybody remember what the, what the words of the key song in Godspell was? Were? Pre prepare you the way of the Lord. Comes straight out of the, the first uh, verse of, I think it's Mark's Gospel or Luke's or... Matthews, but de definitely not John's. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, okay, so I skipped that bit. Um, but, uh, but it's interesting that um, Mark actually uses the language of Isaiah as he introduces his gospel uh, uh, to make a really strong connection with the Old Testament, the coming of the kingdom of God. So all four gospels proclaim the good news. And if you look, especially in, in the book of Acts, at Paul's explanation of the good, good news, he, he actually has ten, about 10 different sorts of good news. So we've got to be careful about narrowing this idea of good news down. It's quite, uh, it's quite broad. So why four Gospels? Obvious question to someone like me anyway is, are there any other Gospels? Um, and the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, we know that the Gospels aren't the only one. Luke 1, 1 it actually says in the Gospels, uh, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honourable Theophilus. P.S. Thanks for the paycheck. 
Uh, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you are taught. Because it's actually what Luke is saying. He was commissioned by this guy, Theophilus, who was a, a, a devout Christian who decided he would actually engage Luke to, to be an investigative reporter for him, to actually sift through all the evidence and write a definitive account. And so we know that Luke obviously used other evidence. John chapter 21, verse 25, he admits, Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that could be written. Now, his tongue's firmly in his cheek when he says that. Um, you know, with the amount of stuff online today, I'm pretty sure we could have got everything. But it's interesting to note that the Gospels do not pretend to be a journal of every single thing Jesus does or did. And it doesn't pretend to be the only source of material. They were actually written for a particular purpose. And of course, there's other things. Who's ever watched The Da Vinci Code? Dan Brown, of course, made famous The Gospel of Thomas, which has been missed out. It's not in the Gospels. Why was Thomas missed out? Just because he had to poke his finger in the holes, to be sure. But it turns out that the Gospel of Thomas is not a Gospel. What did I say the Gospel was? It's the proclamation of good news. The Gospel of Thomas is good advice. It's actually about 100 plus sayings that Jesus supposedly told the disciples in the upper room. And who knows that some of the parables are cryptic? Apparently the Gospel of Thomas is a level above that. But, so it's not the proclamation of good news and there is actually no mention of the death and resurrection of Jesus as part of that story. So it's not a proclamation of the good news of salvation. It's not a good proclamation. So it doesn't, it's not actually a gospel. It's a writing of somebody who may or may not have been there. There's a lot of debate about that. But it's not actually a gospel. So back to the four gospels. Actually, there's only one. All ancient writings refer to the gospel singularly. And in fact, if you look at the heading of ancient manuscripts, each manuscript, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all it says at the top is according to Matthew, according to Mark. It doesn't even say the gospel. So the whole work in ancient times was known as the gospel. And if you read a particular one, it was according to. And so there's, it's a different way that we, we think about it. Um, they're actually ancient biographies with a purpose. Uh, unlike our modern way of thinking, the Gospels tie the Old Testament and the New Testament together in lots of innovative ways. So lots of different types of hyperlink styles, uh, which we'll go into in, in the coming weeks. I won't talk about that now. But unlike, for instance, uh, the biography of Plato, and uh, there's been studies done that compare the Gospels to biographies of, of Greek and Roman people of, around the same era. And, you know, biographies don't contain everything. You know, you, you don't read it, I was born, blah, blah, I took my first cry. All that boring detail gets missed out of biographies. But they're interested in showing you something about the person. But if you take Plato, for instance, there's a biography of him that's been written. But it, it basically takes the assumption that if you read about Plato, you're going to get some good knowledge and you'll, get, you'll find out some wonderful things. But if you don't read about him, well, whatever, you've missed out, tough. But the Gospels are actually different. They are actually not only telling you the story of Jesus, but each one in its own way is skillfully working to persuade you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they, they make no bones about it. They're, they're trying to be truthful and accurate accounts, but they, ha they actually have a purpose. That the, the disciples were so invested in Jesus that the, throughout that all is the fact that this is the story of Jesus and 
when you finish reading my story, you've got two choices. One, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or B, it's a lot of baloney. They're the only two choices they give you. There's no fence sitting on that one. They're not only four different views through four different eyes, they're actually narratives with four different purposes aimed at producing the same outcome. Who's heard the story about the four blind men and the elephant? You know, that they fumble around and one says, oh, elephant's not so big, it's sort of long and thin, it's got a fluffy bit on the end because he's got the tail. And the other one says, wow, he's like a tree trunk, he's sort of massive and it's rounded. And they go on to describe it. Well, the disciples are actually like four sighted men looking at an elephant. And they're in different places. I mean, Luke's standing at the trunk thinking, wow, I'm going to tell everybody about the trunk. But I can see the legs and I can see the tail at the back, but they're not important. I'm going to talk about the trunk. So they're not blind men, but they actually have specific purposes and specific angles that they want to teach us about the gospel message. And, uh, and for that reason, who's ever noticed they don't 100% agree? Now, who's glad about that? If it, I mean, would you trust the Gospels if they were 100% the same? Four different people write these things and they're exactly the same. Would you be suspicious that there had been some cribbing? That they had actually looked at each other's exam papers? Am, am I right? So, if that's right, what percentage of agreement are you comfortable with? 95%? 90, who'd be comfortable with 90%? Less? 85? Well, let's go for a lower limit. Who'd be happy if the Gospels were only 50% sort of concurring? Nobody. 60%? 70. Any advance on 70, 70, 70, 70, 70 going once, twice? 75? 80%? There's a few hands there. So what that actually demonstrates is that there's a continuum of believability. Somewhere between 80 and 90%, we're, we're quite happy to recognise that these are individual accounts with differences based on the biases of the person, the, the, the angle they're coming from. And that raises an interesting point, because if there's a continuum of believability, what happens to the fact that the Word of God is sacrosanct, set in stone, inspired by God and can't be changed? Is God only 80 to 95% accurate in what he does, in his inspiration? And I think we have to rethink this whole idea of what the Gospels are telling us, because I believe what God inspired was Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to write the Gospels. But who knows that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John weren't perfect people? We've read about them in the Gospels. We know that they were chuckleheads at times. And I know, for instance, that God anointed me to be a pastor of this church. And uh, I'll admit it, I've been a chucklehead at times. I don't think that people write down my sermons. In fact, I'm surprised if anybody writes down my sermons. Um, or listens to them online or whatever and thinks, wow, that is exactly the word of God because he's anointed by God to preach the word of God so that every word of his mouth, every word he's written down is, is divinely inspired and therefore can't be changed. I'm pretty sure not many people think, of that, think that way. And, and I know that we all think that the disciples are better than us, um, and they probably were, but they were divinely inspired. The word of God as it was written was not divinely incised on bits of scroll. And so hopefully that doesn't explode too many people's categories about 
what they believe about the Bible, but we've got to actually recognise that there is, um, there is room for disagreement, but that doesn't actually impact on the divinity of the Word of God or its insp- inspiration. Because in, in that sense, the Gospels are actually a unifying story that shows both the Old Testament and the Gospels are narratives that lead us to Jesus and come to a mind-blowing culmination in each of the Gospels of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so they all lead into that. So in conclusion, I better, we can see that the Gospels are actually carefully designed and sometimes we struggle with this fact that they're designed. We sort of think, well, surely God, they close their eyes and move, you know, the moving pen sort of idea. But they didn't. They, they actually thought about how they wanted to present the gospel to people to best illuminate the person of Jesus Christ in each of their different ways. And I think one, one, of, the, one of the interesting things we can base this on is that, don't forget, these were written in the first century AD. And the, the, the Bible, the scriptures actually state that um, if you don't believe me, some of the people who saw these things are still around. Some have died, but some of them are still around. So you can ask them. So you've got first century readers of this stuff who read this and were okay with the differences, knowing that, I mean, the, there's lies in here. Matthew's genealogy in, in his first chapter goes from Abraham to David and uh, David to the, um, the exile and the exile to Jesus. And there are 14 generations in between each one. If you look in the Old Testament, he's missed some out. It's not the exact genealogy. But he's put it in there for a purpose, and the number 14 should tell you what it is, because that's two times seven. He's actually making a point about the, the holiness of the line of David that Jesus came from. He also pokes a hole in the balloon that you might get that that's exciting, because he actually mentions four women in that genealogy, and only four, and none of them are Jews. They're all Gentiles who rescued the Jews from their foolish path. So, hey, you need to start reading Matthew. You thought genealogies were boring, you need to get into that. So I just want to encourage you that that, that this isn't just history that we're reading. There's, There's design behind this, and the design is that they advance a claim that will challenge the reader to think differently, to behave differently, and I make a decision about Jesus after reading this book or these books. And the claim is that the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah of Israel and the true Lord of the world. I made a point earlier saying that you know, the modern church often reduces the good news of the kingdom to only the good news of salvation. And while we don't want to be guilty of that, I do want to acknowledge that salvation is still an essential part of the good news and an important step in our relationship with Jesus. So I encourage you today, whether you're online, uh, whether you're here in person, to actually make a decision about that claim I mentioned. Now, you might be ready to make a decision now, but you might need to read a bit more. I, I want to set everybody some homework. I want you to read all four Gospels, not all of all four Gospels, but I want you to read the first chapter of each and use... Get a Bible that has funny little letters and numbers above the words and find out where these are linked to. Because the, uh, we're going to be talking next week about how, how the, the um, disciples actually linked the, the New Testament 
scriptures to, the, to the, the Old Testament scriptures rather to the New Testament. And they do it in quite a variety of fun ways. And they are not actually afraid of making you work to find the connections. Because who knows that it's good to work, you feel more satisfied if you've had to work to find something. So we need to make a decision about the claim that the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah of Israel and true Lord of the world. So if, you, if you're online, I mean, you want to make that decision right now, press the raise hand button in the chat. There's a member of our team who will talk to you privately and you can actually talk about and pray about taking the next steps to actually become a follower of the Lord of the world, of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you want to take that step or even if you want to ask about that step, I'm going to be down here for five or ten minutes when the service ends and I'd be happy to answer any of your questions or to pray with you to make Jesus your Lord and Saviour. But I want to set homework. I want us all to read those chapters. And you don't have to hurry. You've got a week. You know, you've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's, that's all four done with one chapter each. And then you've got Friday and Saturday and possibly even before church on Sunday morning to do a bit of revision to see where they link and what they do. And I think what will happen is that you'll discover that it, rather than boring writing about genealogies or the future or, or what Jesus was was going to do, you'll find that it comes alive because it's actually, actually the fulfilment of something that had been proclaimed and prophesied hundreds of years before that people were waiting for, people were, were absolutely on the edge of their seat waiting for something. I mean, if you read the book of, I don't want to distract you, but you know, the book of Daniel talks about 70 times 7, whatever. About the time of Jesus is this time when a lot of Jewish people are thinking, something's got to happen, something's got to happen. And guess what? There were lots of other things that did happen. There were lots of rev revolts against the Romans, just like Jesus. His wasn't the first, what the Romans thought of as an uprising. You know what the difference between Jesus' uprising, uprising and the others were? The other uprisings were worldly. They claimed to be of God, but guess what their solution was? The way to peace is to kill the bad guys. Who knows that that's how war works. Now, whenever countries go to war, the idea is that we, we want peace. We're fighting for peace, right? The only way we're going to get peace is if we kill all the bad guys. And that's the worldview. But Jesus came and he had an uprising which said, Ho, oh, bless your enemies. Let's not kill the bad guys anymore. Everybody went, huh? And that's why. 2,000 years later, we still read the Gospels to find out why Jesus was so different, who Jesus was, and to test his claim that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Look forward to talking to you next week after you've read all of those fun things. Thanks, Katie.